Much like the vows that a couple takes during a wedding ceremony, the Apostles' Creed was a statement that early Christians, now some of you who have been here, you know this, this is a little bit of review, that early Christians would confess as they were getting ready to be baptized. Now remember the context. In the early days of the church, they were literally taking their lives and putting them into the emperor's hands. And so when they were baptized into the faith, it was very important that they confessed exactly what they believed. Now let me remind you about something. Saying the creed as you did a minute ago, reciting the creed, has absolutely no magical powers whatsoever. Do you get my drift? In other words, the fact that you said the creed just a few minutes ago does not confer on you extra merit or extra grace. You don't get extra points with God because you said the Apostles' Creed any more than you would get extra credit for going through a series of beads and saying the rosary. The Apostles' Creed is a statement. And thus far, here's what we've seen in our weeks of study. We have gone through what we believe, what we confess about our great triune God. And we took a lot of time. So we confessed a lot of things about God the Father Almighty, about Jesus Christ, His only Son. We confessed about the Holy Spirit, and then we honed it down, and we confessed that we believe in the Holy Christian Church, that there is one body made up of all Christians from all ages that is gathered together and will be gathered together for eternity. Now, I want you to notice something about the creed, and I've highlighted the part that we're going to be talking about today. Do you see it? For the first time in the creed, we are not confessing necessarily in toto the things that we believe about God. We are doing that. But I want you to see this, and you've got to see it, so that this can have the correct impact in your life. For the first time, we're confessing something about us. Do you see it? I believe in the forgiveness. We're we're, we're talking about God and what He has done and what He is doing. But for the first time, we are confessing something about us, and I'm calling this the woe factor. All right? Do you see it? What is the woe factor? We're going to look at that for just a few minutes. I wish we had more time. This morning in my study getting ready for this, I had five pages of notes. I had to trim it down to a page and a half. There was a lot left out, but I was told that Scott and Amy Farley are with the two-year-olds this morning, and there are like 16 of them, so I better finish on time. Here's the woe factor. And by the way, this is biblical, by the way. This is the part of Psalm 130 that we read a few moments ago, and this is from the the NIV. 
which I think is a more descriptive way of saying it. If you should mark iniquity, that's good. If you should mark it down. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins. Now, in order for this to be more than just a sermon, I know that some of you just came in here to hear a sermon and you're out of here at the end, but I, I don't want that, and I think deep down you don't want that either. You want this to really get you, and in order for this to be something that is a woe factor for you, as well as a wow factor that we're going to come to, you've got to personalize this. I, I hope you personalize everything that we do. You've got to personalize it. If you, oh Lord, kept a record of, go ahead and personalize it, my sins, Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that? The reason I said that this was a woe factor, this is the way that the prophet Isaiah responded when he was shown not only his sins, but the sins of the culture around him. By the way, God was calling him to make an impact. He's calling us to make an impact. That's why I prayed what I prayed a minute ago. I, I don't know that that came out like what I wanted it to, but you got the gist of it? Don't run in fear. Embrace this as an opportunity for gospel here and around the world. So this is what Isaiah said. Woe is me. Why? For I am lost. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, now look at this, this is so important. He, he has seen Almighty God, God the Father Almighty on the throne. And in light of that, he is struck by the depth of his own depravity, his own lostness. And he says, woe is me. Now, let me just pose a question to you based on this. Is there really... Okay, I, I know what you're going to say because I know most of you and but I want you to think more in a more expanded uh, way about the answer to this question. Is there really a problem with sins as a general concept? Is there? Well, you think so, but now expand that. Do people around you that you interact with who are not, they're, they're not involved in church, they're most likely not Christians, do they really believe that there is a problem with sins? Okay, now I said personalize this. Do you, do you really believe there's a problem with your sins? Some don't. And you were right a minute ago. I've quoted these two men before. I always pray about, should I do this? But when people go on public record, one, is, one of these men is dead, one is still living. When, when they write books and the gist, and I am not just taking out and, and using this to prove a point, the world around you does not believe that there's a problem with sin or sins, as I'm saying it right here, as, as we're saying it. But there are also Christians or people who call themselves Christians who don't as well. Robert Schuller 
died in 2013. And for me personally, he was always a little bit of an enigma. I, I, there were some things that he might have said that seemed okay or plausible. He was, he's been called the father of the megachurch movement. Got a lot of his stuff from Norman Vincent Peale, the father of the positive thinking movement. Now, now just, this, this is from people who are, in, who are leaders of churches, okay? So what I'm trying to, to, to do is to, to not get you to demonize Robert Schuller, but to see that this is a prevalent thought. And I don't have any doubt that it's crept into our church. Sins are not a big deal. This is an actual quote from one of his books. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, unchristian strategy of attempting to make people unaware of their lost and sinful condition, and I grieve at that. I could say something cocky like, well, I guess I'm just crude and uncouth and unchristian. No, 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 that's the wrong attitude. We need to be grieved that this permeates the church in, in our country. And this pastor is very much alive. He doesn't say it exactly the same way. Again, he's a published author, and so therefore we, we can and we should try to be discerning about these kinds of things because I don't know, but I would guess that in a congregation this size, there are some of you who maybe have a, one of his books on your shelf. So be discerning and be careful. Most people, he says, when he was asked about, do you teach on sin and uh, God's punishment, his wrath for sin, and his answer was, most people are beaten down by life. Would you agree with that? Yeah, they are, and there's a reason for that. They already feel guilty enough. Is that true? Yes. But hang on, because mixed in with the truth, there is some other stuff. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. How many of you can relate to not having raised your children correctly? And you feel guilt over that. So, okay, but, but there's a bigger problem. We can find reasons. So I want them to come to our church, Lakewood, uh, or our meetings, because he goes other places in the world, and be lifted up to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And I think that motivates them to do better. If your faith and my faith is based on what we can do, I think we're dead in the water. Now, should we be moving forward? Yes, and, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what I'm doing, again, don't hear me saying to demonize Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen. Be discerning about some of the things that are in the world today and be discerning about what the Scriptures say about anyone. I'm sure Robert Schuller was a nice guy. And Joel Osteen, 
is a nice guy as far as I can tell. He's got great hair and he's got great teeth. I, I, you know, he, he just, he has to be a great guy. No kid, I'm not kidding about that. But no matter how great a person is who's lifted up into a position of leadership, unless we go to God's Word and say, folks, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so we need to understand that. And that's why Martin Luther said that this phrase right here, I believe in forgiveness of sins, is the most important phrase in the creed. Here's why. Because if it's not true, hear me, If it's not true, then it really doesn't matter whether or not God is almighty, does it? And it really doesn't matter if Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and raised again. You see, if there's no real sin, we talked about this word a minute ago, guilt, there's no real guilt. And if there's no real sin and there's no real guilt, then there's no real need for forgiveness. I I, I looked up this week some websites for, and you can go in the bookstore and you can see shelves that just have all kinds of self-help books that are there designed to make you feel better, all right? So I looked up a YouTube video and I Googled it and, you know, how to not feel guilty. Okay, here was the answer. Just decide to stop feeling guilty. (laughs) Have you ever had that kind of advice? How's that working for you? (laughs) Many years ago in a church... uh, woman was passing me in the hall. I knew this woman. She was our age, had children our age. As she was passing by, I did what I normally do, what you normally do. Hey, and I called her name. I said, how you doing? She stopped. She wheeled around, caught my eye, and I looked at her, and she had this, I, I am not exaggerating, okay? Preachers sometimes exaggerate. This is no exaggeration. She had this panicked and and. and angry look on her face, and she looked me in the eye, and she said, what do you mean by that? I said, hey, I called her by name, and I said, I I just want to know how you, you are. And she said, what do you know? I am serious. It really caught me off guard. It, it just, anyway, I said, hey, you know what? I think we need to talk. And she came in later that afternoon, and she spelled out, I will not go into specifics, the most horrific story of her upbringing. And, and, and the shame and the guilt that she carried and the fear, she really believed that God was going to kill her kids take their life because of what had gone on in her past. And she felt incredibly, incredibly guilty. Now, what if I had said, I've got a YouTube video for you. 
Just stop feeling guilty. I'm going to come back to that, that conversation in just a few minutes. But let, let's, let's do some defining. Let's define sin very quickly. You can't really understand guilt until you understand sin. You can't understand sin until you realize we've broken some rules. And then you've got to, to understand whose rules. So I know most of you know this. Uh, just humor me. Th- this is good. This is good as a way of review. So here's, here is, well, let's start with this. What were we created for? What is the chief end and purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How? By obeying, keeping, walking in His commandments. And that's why the the, the Bible is just full of verses like this that talk about the connection between loving God and walking in His commandments. I really wish you could have been in our ABF class today. Jamal taught. We had such good discussion, and we were, we're, were studying 1 John. And I'm sitting there, really, for those of you who were in the class this morning, I'm sitting there thinking, I wish I could just have you guys come up on stage and share some of the insights. In fact, for those, our classes, uh, what's the name of it? Next Steps, okay. Affectionately called the uh, Bridges Brown Burris class. It sounds like a law firm, Dan, okay? It's not. Uh, But we we know that once we get the ball rolling, we throw out several verses that we just kind of stand back and it's kind of autopilot and we we just love chewing on these scriptures. And so we were talking about these kinds of things that if we know him, we love to keep his commandments. And I want you to watch this one more thing. Here's the thing. A lot of people who are non-Christians think that we Christians are the most miserable people around. Now, I hope they don't get that idea from Christians. But I think as often as not, they just think, well, following a bunch of rules, yuck. You know, that that would make me miserable. No, no, not if there is a relationship to go along with it. See, loving God and knowing God and honoring God, they all go together. They're not burdensome. They're our delight, right, Christian? Now, if you're not a Christian here, you're going to think, this church has lost their mind. That doesn't sound like fun to me. Oh, but it is. God's laws are our delight. I've used this illustration before, and and so just hear it again if you've heard it before, but if if on uh, our anniversary, I bring Jan flowers, she's got a big smile. She hasn't gotten flowers in a while, so she's expecting those, I'm sure, at some point. But if I bring her some flowers and I show up at the door with flowers, and she looks at me, and she says, oh, honey, thank you. Thank you for giving me those flowers. And I stop her, and I say, "Mm, it's my duty. (laughs) See, right down here, there's a law. I heard a guy preach it one time, (laughs) that if I really love you, I'll, I'll get you flowers and maybe a card sometime. You're laughing because it's silly. Oh, I'd I'd never be married like that. That's bondage. No, it's not. 
And what I say is what she wants to hear and what is true. Honey, I give these flowers because they are a symbol of my love for you. They, in no, they pale in comparison of how much I really love you. And that's what God desires for us. That's, I've told you before, that's one of the reasons I love Chick-fil-A. I don't love their food. My grandkids love their food. Ugh. But I don't, but I love to go through the window because every time I say thank you, what do they say? My pleasure. And they act as if they mean it. The law of God. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't murder, give life. Don't commit adultery, be pure. Oh, th those things are things that th the law, one of, guy, one of the guys in the class said this today, the law is written on our hearts. And that's why when we talk about sin, here's the definition. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. This is 1 John uh, 3, 4, and it's, a, it's kind of a, a paraphrase. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is the transgression of the law. So going back to the purpose of man, chief end and purpose of man, glorify God and enjoy him forever. You've heard me say this again. John Piper, I love the way he says it. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So what is sin? Sin is what we do when we're no longer satisfied with God. So that's the definition of sin. What are the consequences of sin? Death. Death in not only a spiritual but a physical and an eternal sense. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me go back to that conversation with that lady, young lady. She was so eaten up with not, not only guilt, but bitterness, unforgiveness. And as we talked back and forth on several different occasions it became clear that she not only was not forgiven, she was not a Christian. She had pushed God away for allowing some of these things to happen to her, but not only that, she was unforgiving. See, and, and let me, this is for all of us, but let, let me just say some of these things to our students. Sin is all about promising you satisfaction. Adults, is that not correct? But it never keeps its promises. And here's why. Because you were created to have and to find your satisfaction in a loving relationship with God. But sin comes along and convinces you to spend your life in a self-loving relationship. And the tragedy is that in the end, it doesn't work. Sin leaves you empty, filled with regret and bitter. Worst of all, it leaves you outside of the love of God. And the love of God is the one thing that can satisfy you. It also leaves you exposed to his righteous anger that was provoked by your decision to love 
anything and everything else but him. That's the woe factor. Now, very, very, very important question. Does God keep a record of sins? This is not a trick question. We're going to get to the no in a minute. That's partially right. Does God keep a record of sins? See, if we just automatically say no with no explanation, then all of these folks out here who are not following Jesus Christ, we are communicating exactly the opposite of what the Bible actually communicates about the record of sin. There are at least two places that talk specifically about record of sin. I saw the dead, it says in Revelation. This is John writing. Great and small, standing before the throne, the books were opened. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? And God made you alive together with him. We're moving to Colossians now, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Watch this. By canceling out what? The record of debt that at one time stood against us with its legal demands. Folks, outside of Christ, every person has a record of sins. That's the woe factor. And you cannot get rid of your guilt by just deciding to stop having it any more than you can get rid of your sins by being religious or joining a church or doing religious things or saying things like the Apostles' Creed. You can't do it. And right now, I tell this to people when I share the gospel with them, and we, we walk through these kinds of things. And if you've gone through the new member class, you remember I used the, the illustration. Right now, if you're outside of Christ, that you are standing under the sword of his just wrath. And the only thing that's holding it up is the sheer grace of God, and there is nothing you can do about it. But what you can't do, God has already done. Let's talk about the provision for sins. We read the first part of this, verse 3, a minute ago. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand but with you? There is forgiveness. This is a wonderful, wonderful word. It is not based on sentimentality. It, it is a, a, a sending away so that we with reverence might serve you. And that's a paraphrase, but that is a very accurate paraphrase. Here's the remedy. Folks, this is the only remedy. God has given this to us. This is so simple. Sometimes people stumble over it. This is what we're told in the scripture. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. And those of you who are in Christ, who are my brothers and sisters here today, you, you know this. Worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul says this, of whom I am chief. So if you're here without Christ today, did you realize that 
a minute ago, if you stood and you, you quoted the Apostles' Creed that you confessed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you confessed that the Trinity has made provision. God the Father Almighty has planned it. He is the great architect of our redemption. The cross was His idea. Remember that. There are some people who think that Jesus just came and God was in a bad mood, and he's always in a bad mood. He's a grumpy God, so Jesus came to alleviate his grumpiness. No, sending Jesus was the Father's idea. The first verse that most of us memorized or, or will memorize says that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So the Son came and accomplished redemption on the cross, his death on the cross paid for your sin debt and turned away God's righteous anger. And we just sang this a few minutes ago, didn't we? Chris Tomlin? And all he's doing is paraphrasing 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. He became sin. This is how God has taken care of your record of sins. With you, there is forgiveness. Your debt has been paid, Christian. Your victory won. And by the way, what happened to your record of sins? I, I think that if you've never put these together, you've heard these probably in sermons a lot, Write down the reference for these students. Get these down because they will be an encouragement to you. But the, the adults too. So what does he do with our record of sins? Let me run rapid fire through these, about five things. Here we go. Here's what he's done with your record of sins. Cast them behind his back. I'm not going to get into the discussion of how big is God what does it mean to, to, to cast him behind his back? It means that going forward, he does not recognize your sins as having any power to condemn. So Isaiah 38, 17, he's cast your record of sins. He's cast all of your sins behind his back. I love this one. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, we, we looked at the record of death that was against you. Colossians 2, 14 says this, he set it aside. What did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. Isn't that a neat picture? So he's cast all of our sins, our record behind his back. He's nailed it to the cross. Again, he will have compassion on us. This is Micah 7, 9. Here's what God will do. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Think Mariana Trench. There at the bottom. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as east is from the west. East, west. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. And then I love this, Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Nada. When God forgives, he forgets. Not that he, 
He, he, he knows about them, but he does not remember our sins against us. He clears our record. He erases the tape. Our sins are removed, buried, blotted out, cast behind his back, all of the rest of those kinds of things, and we will never be condemned again. Carol, you prayed this in our prayer time this morning. It's, it's amazing when I show up on Sunday for our prayer time, our ABF class, how so many times in my preparation, people will either pray or they'll share exact verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It might have been our third or fourth meeting with that woman that I was telling you about. But as I shared the gospel of forgiveness with her, she began to realize I've never, I've never come to the cross. I've never embraced the Lord Jesus Christ for myself. I called her by name and I said, you can do that because here's God's promise to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just. I know this is for Christians too, which means that we need to live out the gospel and look to the gospel every day of our lives. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here are God's provisions. Paul said, here's what you do, turn away from sin and you turn by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, applies what Christ has accomplished, what God the Father planned to your life. Are your sins forgiven? One more word. Parents of two-year-olds, you're going to have to get out of here fast. Christian, don't forget the power of it. See, sometimes people say, well, th this is for the people that were lost in our congregation. I asked this question in our ABF, ABF class today. Has anyone, a Christian, ever said to you, I know God has forgiven me, but... I can't forgive myself. A guy said that to me years ago, and he was a good friend, a good enough friend where I had this insight, and so I said to him, called him by name, and I said, do you realize, Oh, at first I said, congratulations. It kind of shocked him. He said, what? I said, you just made yourself higher than God. He said he could forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. That's why I put this quote by Kevin DeYoung, the very last quote. If you say I can't forgive myself, please hear this. It's probably a sign of worldly grief. That's real. Worldly grief can lead you to forget the cross. Either unbelief in God's promises and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross or regret that is merely focused on your loss of self-esteem and your loss of opportunity. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus as we have talked about this incredible phrase from the Apostles' Creed. 
forgiveness of my sins. God, I know what I deserve. And it's not forgiveness. It's not grace. I don't deserve heaven. But wonder of wonders, you have, you have done that in my life and in the life of countless people in this congregation and people all over this world. You've shown them the reality that they've sinned against you, a holy God, but you've made provision in Christ. I pray that today would be the day of salvation that someone would say, I want to turn away from my sin and the guilt that's weighing me down. And like this woman that I was explaining said, I need Jesus Christ and was born again. May that be true today. But Lord, if we as Christians have fallen back, looking at our failures rather than looking at his forgiveness, I pray that you would remind us every day to preach the gospel to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for this. Now, as we sing, I pray that we would respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.